Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello, we're about to start. Ooh, hi. Hello. Yoo-hoo. Hello. I'm trying to figure... Hello there. Welcome. Welcome to... Fantastic fiction at KGB. Um, My usual co-host, Matthew Kressel, is not here today. Tonight he is instead working at hard, I'm sure, at Sycamore Hill uh, Writing Retreat. Yeah, yeah, right. And instead, Chris Dykeman is going to be helping to co-host tonight. And our usual mic person, Gordon Linsner, is not, he's running late, so I had to set everything up. So it seems to be working. We'll find out when we either are recorded or not. (laughs) And um, anyway, I think I did it right. So anyway, I'm Ellen Datlow, and we've been doing this for a long time. And um, I welcome you all here. Most of you have been here before, but we try to have two um, varied writers who are going to be reading from their work every month, the third Wednesday of every month. And um, you can sign up. I didn't remember the address, but if you go to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, if you're not on a mailing list, you can get onto it. And all we ever send is the notice for this. I mean, we don't use it for anything else. <clears throat> and uh, KGB Bar does not charge us for coming here, for using their space. But basically, they would like you to drink. Either have a drink. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, drink. That's the owner. <laughs> you can drink. Oh, you can drink. All of you out there. Yes, come on in. Um, <laughs> you can drink alcohol. You don't have to drink alcohol. Just have a club soda or something. But anyway, help support the bar and help support the readings. Vodka, vodka. That's, that's uh, Dennis. <laughs> but anyway, over the next few months, I just wanted to tell you, we have an interesting bunch of people coming, including July 15th, Jeffrey Ford and David Edison, August 19th, N.K. Jemison and A.C. Wise, September 16th, Lawrence C. Connolly and Thomas F. Monteleone. Come on. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) October 21st, Fran Wilde and Nathan Ballingrud. November 18th, Robert Levy and Kathy and Kathy Koja, December 16th, C.S.E. Cooney and Elizabeth Hand. And we even have some people in January. January 20th, Julia Sherman and Alana Meyer. Um, uh, February, we're not sure. We have someone, but we're not sure about the second person. March 16th, Rio Ewers and David Nickel. And April 20th, Elizabeth Bear and Scott Lynch. Oh my God, we're up to May. And May 18th, Ellen Clergis and Matthew Kressel who I said, yes, you have to read here. No, it's not conflict of interest. He's got a new book, He's got a new book out, so. Anyway, tonight, I'm, did I forget anything? Do you remember what I said? Okay. All right, anyway, our first reader tonight is Dale Bailey. Dale Bailey's new collection, The End of the End of Everything, came out in the spring. A novel, The Subterranean Season, will follow this fall. He has published three previous novels, The Fallen, House of Bones, and Sleeping Policeman, with Jack Slay, the latter with Jack Slay Jr., and one previous collection of short fiction, The Resurrection Man's Legacy, and other stories. His work has been a finalist for the Nebula Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the Bram Stoker Award. His International Horror Guild Award-winning novelette, Death and Suffrage, was adapted for Showtime Television's Masters of Horror. And I forgot to say, Word Bookstore has books by both, I think, Dale and Simon here for sale. So what you might want to do is at intermission is please buy their books and have them sign them. And I'm sure they will be happy to. So please welcome Dale Bailey.
So, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah? Thanks, Ellen. This thing right here? Um, I'm going to read a story I wrote um, quite some time ago. In, I think it was published in 2004. It was the last story that I wrote before I took a, uh, a long break from writing. In the book, it's the only story, I think, that predates that, that break. I took about a five-year break. So I don't know if it really represents what I do or not. All the stories are kind of apocalyptic in nature in this book. And so it's called The End of the World as We Know It, so I guess it fits. With apologies to uh, R.E.M. Um, so it starts this way. Between 1347 and 1450 A.D., bubonic plague overran Europe, killing some 75 million people. The plague, dubbed the Black Death because of the black pustules that erupted on the skin of the afflicted, was caused by a bacterium now known as Yersinia pestis. The Europeans of the day, lacking access to microscopes or knowledge of disease vectors, attributed their misfortune to an angry god. Flagellants roamed the land, hoping to appease his wrath. They died by the hundreds, both day and night. Agnola de Tura tells us, I buried my five children with my own hands. So many died that all believed it was the end of the world. Today, the population of Europe is about 729 million. Evenings, Wyndham likes to sit on the porch, drinking. He likes gin, but he'll drink anything. He's not particular. Lately, he's been watching it get dark, really watching it, I mean, not just sitting there. And so far, he's concluded that the cliché is wrong. Night doesn't fall. It's more complex than that. Not that he's entirely confident in the accuracy of his observations. It's high summer just now, and Wyndham often begins drinking at 2 or 3. So by the time the sun sets around 9, he's usually pretty drunk. Still, it seems to him that if anything, night rises gathering first in inky pools under the trees as if it is leached up from underground reservoirs and then spreading out toward the borders of the yard and up toward the yet lighted sky. It's only toward the end that anything falls, the blackness of deep space, he supposes, unscrolling from high above the earth. The two planes of darkness meet somewhere in the middle. That's night for you. That's his current theory, anyway. It isn't his porch, incidentally. But then, it isn't his gin, either. Except in the sense that, insofar as Wyndham can tell, anyway, everything now belongs to him. Into the world stories usually come in one of two varieties. In the first, the world ends with a natural disaster either unprecedented or on an unprecedented scale. Floods lead all other contenders. God himself, we're told, is fond of that one. Though plagues have their advocates. A renewed ice age is also popular. Ditto drought. In the second variety, irresponsible human beings bring it on themselves. Mad scientists corrupt bureaucrats. An exchange of ICBMs is the typical route Though the scenario has dated in the present geopolitical environment, feel free to mix and match. Genetically engineered flu virus, anyone? Melting polar ice caps? On the day the world ended, Wyndham didn't even realize it was the end of the world. Not right away, anyway. For him, at that point in his life, pretty much every day seemed like the end of the world. This was not a consequence of depression. It was a consequence of working for UPS. 
where, on the day the world ended, Wyndham had been employed for 16 years, first as a loader, then in sorting, finally in the coveted position of driver, the brown uniform and everything. But this time the company had gone public and he also owned some shares. The money was good, very good, in fact. Not only that, he liked his job. Still, the beginning of every goddamn day started off feeling like a cataclysm. You try getting up at 4 a.m. every morning, see how you feel. This was his routine. At 4 a.m., the alarm went off, an old-fashioned alarm. He wound it up every night. Couldn't tolerate the radio before he drank his coffee. He always turned it off right away, not wanting to wake his wife. He showered in the spare bathroom, again, not wanting to wake his wife. Her name was Anne. Poured coffee into his thermos and ate something he probably shouldn't have, a bagel, a Pop-Tart, while he stood over the sink. By then it would be 4.20, 4.25 if he was running late. Then he would do something paradoxical. He would go back to his bedroom, wake up the wife he'd spent the last 20 minutes trying not to disturb. Have a good day, Wyndham always said, and his wife always did the same thing too. She would screw her face into her pillow and smile. Mmm, she would say. And it was usually such a cozy, loving, early morning, cuddling kind of mmm, that it almost made getting up at four in the goddamn morning worth it. Wyndham heard about the World Trade Center, not the end of the world, though to Wyndham it sure as hell felt that way, from one of his customers. The customer, her name was Monica, was one of Wyndham's regulars, a, a home shopping network fiend, this woman. She was big, too. The kind of woman of whom people say, she has a nice personality, or she has such a pretty face. She did have a nice personality, too. At least Wyndham thought she did, so he was concerned when she opened the door in tears. What's wrong, he said. Monica shook her head at a loss for words. She, she waved him inside. Wyndham, in violation of about 50 UPS regulations, stepped in after her. The house smelled of sausage and floral air freshener. There was home shopping network shit everywhere. I mean, everywhere. Wyndham hardly noticed. His gaze was fixed on the television. It was showing an airliner flying into the World Trade Center. He stood there and watched it from three or four different angles before he noticed the Home Shopping Network logo in the lower right corner of the screen. That was when he concluded that it must be the end of the world. He couldn't imagine the Home Shopping Network preempting regularly scheduled programming for anything else. Wyndham's wife, something of a reader. She liked to read in bed. Before she went to sleep, she always marked her spot using a bookmark Wyndham had given her for her birthday one year. It was a cardboard bookmark with a yarn ribbon at the top and a picture of a rainbow arching high over white-capped mountains. Smile, the bookmark said. God loves you. Wyndham wasn't much of a reader, but if he'd picked up his wife's book the day the world ended, he would have found the first few passages interesting. In the opening chapter, God raptures all true Christians to heaven. This includes true Christians who are driving cars and trains and airplanes, resulting in uncounted lost lives as well as significant damages to personal property. If Wyndham had read the book, he'd have thought of a bumper sticker he sometimes saw from high in his UPS truck. Warning, the bumper, the bumper sticker read. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. <laughs> Whenever he saw that bumper sticker, Wyndham imagined cars crashing, planes falling from the sky, patients abandoned on the operating table pretty much the scenario of his wife's book, in fact. Wyndham went to church every Sunday, but he couldn't help wondering what would happen to the untold millions of people who weren't true Christians, whether by choice or by the geographical fluke of having been born in some place like Indonesia. 
But if they were crossing the street in front of one of those cars, he wondered, or watering lawns those planes would soon plow into. But I was saying, on the day the world ended, Wyndham didn't understand right away what had happened. His alarm clock went off the way it always did, and he went through his normal routine, shower in the spare bath, coffee in the thermos, breakfast over the sink, chocolate donut this time, and gone a little stale. And he went back to the bedroom to say goodbye to his wife. Have a good day, he said, as he always said. And leaning over, he shook her a little, not enough to really wake her, just enough to get her stirring. Sixteen years of performing this ritual, minus federal holidays and two weeks of paid vacation in the summer, Wyndham had pretty much mastered it. He could cause her to stir without quite waking her up just about every time. So to say he was surprised when his wife didn't screw her face into her pillow and smile, something of an understatement. He was shocked, actually. And there was an additional consideration. She hadn't said, mmm, either. Not the usual luxurious, warm, morning bed kind of mmm. And not the infrequent but still familiar, stuffy, I have a cold and my headaches kind of mmm, either. No mmm at all. The air conditioning cycled off. For the first time, Wyndham noticed a strange smell, a faint organic funk like spoiled milk or unwashed feet. Standing there in the dark, Wyndham began to have a very bad feeling. It's a different kind of bad feeling than the one he'd had in Monica's living room watching airliners plunge again and again into the World Trade Center. That had been a powerful, but largely impersonal bad feeling. I say largely impersonal, because Wyndham had a third cousin who worked at Kenner Fitzgerald. The cousin's name was Chris. Wyndham had to look it up in his address book every year when he sent out cards celebrating the birth of his personal savior. The bad feeling he began to have when his wife failed to say, hmm, on the other hand, was powerful and personal. Concerned, Wyndham reached down and touched his wife's face. It's like touching a woman made of wax, lifeless and cool. And it was at that moment, that moment precisely, that Wyndham realized the world had come to an end. Everything after that was just details. Now, Beyond the mad scientists and corrupt bureaucrats, characters in end-of-the-world stories typically come in one of three varieties. The first is the rugged individualist. You know the type. Self-reliant, iconoclastic loners who know how to use firearms and deliver babies. By stories in, they're well on their way to reestablishing Western civilization, though they're usually smart enough not to return to the bad old ways. The second variety is the post-apocalyptic bandit. These characters often come in gangs and they face off against the rugged survivor types. If you happen to prefer cinematic incarnations of the end of the world tale, you can usually recognize them by their penchant for bondage gear, punked out haircuts, and customized vehicles. <laughs> Unlike the rugged survivors, the post-apocalyptic bandits embrace the bad old ways, though they're not displeased by the expanded opportunities to rape and pillage. The third type of character, also pretty common, though a good deal less so than the other two, is the world-weary sophisticate. Like Wyndham, such characters drink too much. Unlike Wyndham, they suffer badly from ennui. Wyndham suffers too, of course, but whatever he suffers from, you can bet it's not ennui. We were discussing details, though. Wyndham did the things you do when you discover a loved one dead. He picked up the phone and dialed 911. Seemed to be something wrong with the line, however. No one picked up on the other end. Wyndham took a deep breath, went into the kitchen, tried the extension. Once again, he had no success. 
The reason, of course, was that this being the end of the world, all the people who were supposed to answer the phones were dead. Imagine them being swept away by a tidal wave if that helps, which is exactly what happened to more than 3,000 people during a storm in Pakistan in 1960. Not that this is literally what happened to the operators who would have taken Wyndham's 911 call, you understand, but more about what really happened to them later. Important thing is that one moment they'd been alive, the next they were dead, like Wyndham's wife. Wyndham gave up on the phone. He went back to the bedroom. He performed a fumbling version of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on his wife for 15 minutes or so, and then he gave that up too. He walked into his daughter's bedroom. She was 12, and her name was Lisa. He found her lying on her back, her mouth slightly agape. He reached down to shake her. He was going to tell her that something terrible had happened, that her mother had died. But he found that something terrible had happened to her as well, the same terrible thing, in fact. Wyndham panicked. He raced outside with the first hint of red had begun to bleed up over the horizon. His neighbor's automatic irrigation system was, up, was on, the heads wickering in the silence, and as he sprinted across the lawn, Wyndham felt the spray like a cool hand against his face. Then, chilled, he was standing on his neighbor's stoop, hammering the door with both fists, screaming. After a time, he didn't know how long, a dreadful calm settled over him. There was no sound but the sound of the sprinklers throwing glittering arcs of spray into the halo of the street light on the corner. He had a vision then. It's as close as he had ever come to a moment of genuine prescience. In the vision, he saw the suburban houses stretching away in silence before him. He saw the silent bedrooms in them curled beneath the sheets. He saw a legion of sleepers also silent who would never again wake up. Wyndham swallowed. Then he did something he could not have imagined doing even 20 minutes ago. He bent over, fished the key from its hiding place between the bricks, and let himself in his neighbor's house. The neighbor's cat slipped past him, mewing querulously. Wyndham had already reached down to retrieve it when he noticed the smell, that unpleasant, faintly organic funk, not spoiled milk, and not feet, something worse, soiled diapers or a clogged sewer. Wyndham straightened, the cat forgotten. Herm, he called. Robin? No answer. Inside, Wyndham picked up the phone and dialed 911. He listened to it ring for a long time. Then, without bothering to turn it off, Wyndham dropped the phone to the floor. He made his way through the silent house, snapping on lights. The door to the master bedroom, he hesitated. The odor that was unmistakable now, a mingled stench of urine and feces of all the body's muscles relaxing at once, was stronger here. When he spoke again, whispering really, Herm, Robin, he no longer expected an answer. Wyndham turned on the light. Robin and Herm were shapes in the bed, unmoving. Stepping closer, Wyndham stared down at them. A fleeting series of images cascaded through his mind. Images of Herm and Robin working the grill at the neighborhood block party or puttering in their vegetable garden. They'd had a knack for tomatoes, Robin and Herm. Wyndham's wife had always loved their tomatoes. Something caught in Wyndham's throat. He went away for a while then. The world just kind of grayed out on him. When he came back, Wyndham found himself in the living room, standing in front of Robin and Herm's television. He turned it on, cycled through the channels, but there was nothing on. Literally nothing. Snow, that's all. 75 channels of snow. The end of the world had always been televised in Wyndham's experience. The fact that it wasn't being televised now suggested that it really was the end of the world. Here's one of my favorite end of the world scenarios, by the way. Carnivorous plants. 
Wyndham got in his car and went looking for assistance, a functioning telephone or a functioning television, a helpful passerby. He found, more the, he found instead more non-functioning telephones and televisions, and of course, more non-functioning people. Lots of those, though he had to look harder for them than you might have expected. They weren't scattered in the streets or dead at the wheels of their cars in a massive traffic jam, though Wyndham supposed that might have been the case elsewhere in the world where the catastrophe, whatever it was, had fallen square in the middle of the morning rush. Here, however, it seemed to have caught most folks at home in bed. As a result, the roads were more than usually passable. At a loss, numb, really, Wyndham drove to work. Might have been in shock by then. He'd gotten accustomed to the smell, anyway, and the corpses of the night shift, men and women he'd known for 16 years, in some cases, didn't shake him as much. What did shake him was the sight of all the packages in the sorting area. He was struck suddenly by the fact that none of them would ever be delivered. <laughs> so Wyndham loaded his truck and went out on his route. He wasn't sure why he did it, Maybe because he'd rented a movie once in which a post-apocalyptic drifter scavenges a U.S. postal uniform and manages to reestablish Western civilization, but not the bad old ways, by assuming the postman's appointed rounds. The futility of Wyndham's own efforts, on the other hand, quickly became evident. He gave up when he found that even Monica, or as he more often thought of her, the home shopping network lady, was no longer in the business of receiving packages. Wyndham found her face down on the kitchen floor, clutching a shattered coffee mug in one hand. In death, she had neither a pretty face nor a nice personality. She did have that same ripe, unpleasant odor, however. In spite of it, Wyndham stood looking down at her for the longest time. He couldn't seem to look away. And when he finally did look away, Wyndham went back to the living room where he had once watched nearly 3,000 people die and opened her package himself. When it came to UPS rules, the home shopping network lady's home was turning out to be something of a post-apocalyptic zone in its own right. Wyndham tore the mailing tape off and dropped it on the floor. He opened the box. Inside, wrapped safely in three layers of bubble wrap, he found a porcelain statue of Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, died August 16, 1977, while sitting on the toilet. An autopsy revealed that he had ingested an impressive cocktail of prescription drugs, including codeine, Inimate, <laughs> skip that one, <laughs> and various barbiturates. Doctors also found trace elements of Valium, Demerol, and other pharmaceuticals in his veins. I'll stop with the death of Elvis, a true apocalypse. <laughs> so, I hope you enjoyed. Thank you. This is, the, this is the new book, and it's available in the back, I'm told. And it, you can find out what happens. You can find out what happens and uh, get a copy for yourself. Father's Day is coming. It makes a nice gift. Uh, thank you all, seriously. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We encourage you to drink heavily here at this bar. to the second half of the KGB Fantastic Fiction series. I am not Matt Kressel. I have never been Matt Kressel, even though I aspire to be Matt Kressel. Um, I wanted to mention the, um, the mailing list. 
if you are interested in joining a mailing list if you're not on it, it is groups.yahoo.com forward slash groups forward slash KGB Fantastic Fiction. And all you'll get is a, a, a reminder of who is reading and when. Twice a month. Twice a month. And no other spam or irritating. Yes. So join us, won't you? Uh, I am here to introduce our second reader of the evening, Simon Strances. Simon is the author of four collections of strange and weird stories, including Burnt Black Sons, which you can purchase at the back of the room. Uh, he is also the editor of Aikman's Heirs and Shadow's Edge, and he will be the guest editor of the year's best weird fiction, Volume 3. Yes. His writing has been reprinted in numerous annual best of anthologies. It has been translated into other languages. He has been nominated for the British Fantasy Award and the Shirley Jackson Award. A warm KGB welcome, please, for Simon Francis. All right, great. Um, I've learned tonight, which I should have learned a hundred times before, not to read after people. I should read first. <laughs> I always want to change what I'm going to read while I'm listening. I think this is too good. I have to read something else. Uh, but I can't, so this is what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to read uh, two pieces. Um, one is uh, a short story that was in a book called Economicon that I think no one read or got a copy of, even the contributors, unless, <laughs> unless Livia got hers, I don't know. Uh, and then after that, so I'm going to read just a very short piece from uh, what may be, hopefully, uh, a novel from me. Um, I don't know yet. It's, it's kind of rough, but I'll give it a shot to see what happens. <clears throat> but first, the main course. Uh, this is called Captured in Oils. Here we go. Okay, can you hear me okay? <laughs> Dunwin smeared the russet paint across his face, his hands coated as though with blood. The canvas, a tumult of searing colors, dared him, taunted him, beckoned him. Every inch of his body alight, his long spindle fingers were knives as they touched his flesh, ten long razors down his sunken cheeks, over his raw lips. He wished he could grasp his face within those hands and squeeze tight, so tight the flesh would pucker and buckle, would slip between the blades of his fingers, would be rent in strips and fall to the floor, unleashing wave after wave of excruciating pain through his body. Perhaps then he would feel something. Perhaps then the void would be filled. Within arm's reach, his instruments were laid, brushes, jars, tubes of the oldest, most clotted paint he could find, all amid syringes, squares of foil, small blister packs of crushed pills. He'd been awake for more than 100 hours, kept so by the drugs and the coffee and the booze. If he slept, they were nightmares, nightmares of slithering leathery arms and multitudinous eyes, nightmares that haunted him for his life and had finally come in earnest, nightmares that sang sweet songs he had never before heard and yet remained uncannily familiar. The fractured dreams haunted and terrified him, and try as he might, he could not escape them. They bled, they bled into the waking world. He barely recalled he had once worked, had slept, had eaten as others did. Painting, his art, had been his closely kept secret, the one inch of himself he did not give up to his blinded co-workers, those men and women whose souls had long ago rotted, who existed in perpetual days of work and sleep and work. He was not one of them. He was not a dull-eyed sheep. Every, even sitting in his chair as a drone, doing drone-like things, he felt the energy crackling within him. Sometimes he looked at those others, so long dead inside, and he pitied them. They did not have the spark that he did. But there had always been dreams. They were what told him there was more, and he fed those dreams, allowed them to fester. He had little else beyond them, beyond capturing them on canvas. He was tall, his nose long and narrow. He felt out of step with the world, his desires so alien from those around him. Where his peers slapped back and bellowed with laughter, he hid behind his brushes. He didn't know the reason for his experiments with paint, with brushes, with canvas, or what result they might ultimately yield. But the spark within drove him to find out, drove him at a cost of everything else. He was not a glassy-eyed rat in a cage. His freedom was with him forever in his mind. 
he had only to open the door wide enough and slip through to somewhere else. But the visions were different. At first, they were merely headaches, a tingling in the back of his skull that made his shoulders hunch. But the suffering intensified. Each time he painted, it radiated further, deeper. And yet, the spark inside him intensified as well, his muse driving him forward. The pain was blinding, creeping down his arm, taking possession. As he felt consciousness slip away, he felt his limbs animate. And only when the haze cleared did he find his hands had not been idle. Before him, upon his easel, was a painting unlike anything he had ever seen, unlike anything he had ever done. The first time this happened, the first time he was so possessed, the painting was a smearing of colors, reds and browns and oranges, like the nightly remnants of an abattoir. The sight revolted him, exacerbated by his body's reaction to the loss of all control. And he blanked the piece with primer five layers thick. Yet even that was not enough to drown the hideous artwork. It bled through the white, like a nightmare infecting the waking world. And Dudwin was forced to burn the canvas, if only to be rid of it forever. And still, he choked upon the toxic smell of burning oils. He found himself possessed again by the urge at his office, while ensnared in a meeting with his droning boss, droning on about dronish things. Dunwin's pen worked furiously upon the pad in front of him, plastic fumes of blue ink filling his senses. So engrossed, his hands did not cease until the rendering was complete. By then, the room had not stopped speaking. By then, the room had stopped speaking, and all eyes were on him. He looked around in a daze, the face of the co-worker next to him scrunched in a look of disgust. He glanced down and saw his artwork, a single, intricate, lifelike eye, surrounded by a halo of six other smaller eyes, all glaring out from the page, challenging the viewer to continue. This effect registered secondarily as he saw the immediate cause of his co-worker's disgust and realized then why the room had gone so silent. During his episode, Dunwood had unwittingly soiled himself. He was ordered to a doctor, but could not bring himself to go. Instead, he traveled home for respite from the world beyond, the vision circling inside as though caught in a storm. No method he found could alleviate them, nothing but to step behind his easel and place brush to blank canvas. The paintings exercised him, and for a while they worked. They liberated his mind, brought clarity and cohesion to his thoughts, and after a few days he found himself recuperated, ready to return to work in the dead factory where nothing was produced. But no sooner than an hour after his return, he awoke on the roughly trodden carpet of the office, his co-workers hovering close. Dunwood's head throbbed, and as he raised his hand for comfort, he discovered his long fingers were stained again with blue ink. Loose sheaves of paper were strewn around him, left where they had fallen, and in his grogginess, he thought he saw a circle of seven eyes staring out at him from amid the aimless scribbles. They were four, there were four hands around his arms then, co-workers lifting him from the pile of his own filth, and carting him to the washroom where he was unceremoniously discarded. There he stayed, less from embarrassment and more from an inability to cohere his thoughts, make them feel as though they were indeed his own. He cleaned himself up as best he could, then remained hidden, struggling, from what, struggling with what was happening to him until his disgusted manager entered and, face contorted, spoke to him in an endless drone. Nod, nod, nod until the manager was finished at which point there was nothing else to do but leave. Paintings were his life preserver when the nightmares intensified. Paintings were his life preserver when the nightmares intensified. Flashes of violence, of bloody gore, of teeth and hair and claws, of long trails of something thick and viscous and sticky, scents wet and old and foul. Things in the darkness reached out, staring at him, things pushing into his head and his heart and his mind. He awoke a few days later with a sense of violation, his hands clenched in palsy, the fingers twitching in some arcane sequence. He managed to climb from his bed, his third eye full of visions, and grab brushes to paint them on the page. But the sparking pain blinded him, his ears roared with a song he could not recall. And when he was done, what stared back was more than formless. Instead, he could see some shape behind the veil, something large and violent ponderous, something mesmerizing all the same, filling him with unyielding dread. But the paintings no longer offered him release from the torment. His haunted sleep continued unabated. His mind continued to burn, to throb, to feel as though razors were being dragged through it. Light began to bother him, his eyes sensitive to the brightness of the frazzling midday sun. 
he scrambled to find some way of alleviating the pain, turned first simply to drink, then what failed to curb the waking nightmares, something stronger. He swallowed, snorted, injected anything he could find, anything that might dull the onslaught of images in his skull, too many swirling too quickly to capture and paints. Like a slippery eel, that sparking thing within his mind remained elusively out of reach of his brushes. Soon, his hands rebelled. The horrendous pain transformed them. A pair of stained claws, he could no longer hold a brush or a pen, but even if he were able, he would not. The tools were too abstract, kept him too distant from the canvas. He had to get closer, feel the roughness beneath his sliding fingers. His hands covered in paint, he smeared shapes onto the blank of the canvas until the entire frame was wet with his mind's ichor. He pushed and dragged, he spun and swirled. He drew fingers and strange eldritch symbols in the slick paint. Before his eyes, the colors mixed, melded, and in the swirling madness, he saw the rough worn shape of his nightmares moving as though he were looking through a colored window into another realm. He stretched and reshaped the paint, the image itself changing beneath his long fingers. He teased the colors apart, reformed them, all in an effort to catch that which moved before his eyes. He no longer cared if what he saw were real. He knew that if, if he trapped it, it would release him from his agonizing hell. The thing sparked, moved quickly, but Dunwood's hands moved faster, owned from weeks of obsession. The shadow scurried across the canvas, a shark circling its prey. And when it turned, he could see that single, that single eye encircled by six sharp and dead within the smears. That ancient thing moved toward him. It speed faster than he might have imagined, and his fingers moved on their own, fleeting across the canvas, all working to fix the thing in place before it arrived at the window between worlds. Faster, faster the thing hurtled, its features growing more defined with each pass of Dunwood's fingers took across its body. There were a multitude of legs, dwarfed by the number of staring eyes. Long, thick tentacles like elephantine trunks flared from its mouth. It rocketed towards him with abandon, each crease of its mottled skin screaming out, and Dunwood worked relentlessly to fix it in place. Faster, faster, fingers shaping, slick leathery arms flailing, teeth gnashing, sparks. Faster, faster, arms like pistons, ears filled with the rushing wind or blood. Faster, faster, eyes tearing, head throbbing, pulsing rhythms. Dunwin worked furiously, and when the creature reached the precipice, when that ancient primordial god was at hair's breadth from the surface of the canvas, Dunwin was finally able to crystallize it, trap it forever behind the veil. His head continued to throb. His arms ached with exertion. He panted, felt alive, terrified but alive. But it was then when he looked at the sparking canvas that he realized what he saw. It was no window into the vast abyss. It was a mirror, a mirror of what stirred within him, what he had so long, what had so long been hidden behind his artisan eyes. The god beyond stirred as he did, each movement cyclopean in the vast expansive void that was the painted mirror. Those six eyes that encircled the one scrutinized him coldly, blinked as he blinked, lids of translucent flesh. All seven eyes stared into his two, and his two into them. And that was when he felt its final trick, felt that presence creeping outward from the painted canvas, the sensation of increased pressure weighing on him, suffocating him. Dunwin felt the world turning black around him, the sparking in the edge of his vision trailing black in its wake. He tried to speak, but words would not emerge, tried to turn, but limbs would not respond. Instead, the darkness moved faster, the pressure increasing as though he were sinking, sinking while that loathsome god in the painted mirror watched on hungrily. And then it was dark, and it seemed dark for so long, for eons. And when he finally felt the light reappear, at first a pinprick, then seven, he opened his numerous eyes and observed what stared back, a face, long and narrow, its nose pronounced, paint smeared across it like a shriek. The thing reached forward with fingers long and thin, and Dunwin saw the edges of the mirror ripple and twist and crumple, leaving him floating alone in the void of everything. So that was a short story. Now I'll just read this quick excerpt from my maybe one day, hopefully sort of maybe novel. That's rough, so don't, don't judge me too harshly. So I guess the... Uh, the background to this, uh, a female reporter has been uh, let go from her, from her paper due to downsizing. She's moved to a small town, you know, very uh, cliched, I imagine. Um, now she is, uh, uh, she's moved into a house where there's been a, um, 
where a young girl has died in the past and her parents moved out after their death. And she's in the house looking around. Though I promised myself I wouldn't, I had a new bottle of wine open within the hour and the warmth of it running through my blood helped settle my anxiety. I sat in the living room off the kitchen, its glass windows facing outward toward the sea. And despite the triple pane of glass that separated me from the outside, I was still convinced I'd heard each wave rushing against the shore. I wondered what it might have been like to swim out among the waves, dive in and swim as far as I could. Would I get further than a mile, two? How far could I go before I couldn't turn back? How long would I be able to survive? With a few glasses of wine coursing through me, I doubted very long at all. But Cheryl had wine, did, but had Cheryl, but did Cheryl have wine running through her veins? What was her excuse for going so far out? I couldn't imagine anyone wanting to swim in that chaotic surf. It made no sense, but I knew that teenage girls didn't always make sense. Sometimes they just were. Tired of watching the water, I roamed through the house, inspecting each room, trying to get a sense of who had lived there. Their master bedroom was easy enough. You could still see Mr. and Mrs. Knox's misery stained on the walls. One of the rooms had been a sewing room, I think, or a small library whose shelves covered the entire length of one of the walls. Those shelves were empty now. Everything the Knoxes had stood on them long ago gone. The last of the rooms I entered was located at the end of the second floor hallway, and I realized I'd, I'd rarely been in it since buying the house. Once I was standing in the room and actually paying attention, it looked different. True, it smelled stale, and there was still the lingering odor of a young girl's fruity perfume as though it had seeped into the worn carpet. And I knew it had been Cheryl Knox's room. Standing in the middle, I imagined I saw a chest of drawers, Vanny mirror propped on top, her bed covered in pale yellow accents. She sat there on the phantom bed, brushing her long brown hair as she watched the floor in a daze. I wondered what, illusion, I wondered what the illusion of her was thinking, if it had any notion that, forward in time, there would be nothing for her, that her future was an empty black void. I shook off my referee and went to the window, trying to get a sense of what her life must have been like. When I was her age, I was simply a massive ball of confusion, too tall, too broad, more like the boys that teased me than the girls who wouldn't talk to me. I had no idea who I was compared to who I wanted to be. And I spent what felt like years staring out my own bedroom window at the elevated rail tracks not far away, imagining how easy it would be to hop on and ride them to freedom. From Cheryl's window, though, all I saw was a reflection of the ocean, signaling something I couldn't quite understand, and wondered, and wondered what could have happened that was so terrible she would sacrifice her life to the waves. There were still spots in my eyes from the water when I looked away, and at first I thought those, and at first I thought those were playing tricks on me. But as the spots faded, the darker spots on the carpet were not fading with them, and I realized it was a trail of dried blood leading to the closet door. I set my wine bottle down on the windowsill and carefully opened the door. The carpet did not extend to the edges of the wall inside, leaving a two-foot gap of floorboard exposed. It was on this flooring that I saw the larger pool of blood that peeked out from beneath the carpet, tendrils seeping into the cracks between the boards, and I realized the carpet had been hastily laid to hide some dark secret. Suddenly, I was an intruder there, a witness to some family tragedy. I wanted to run, just as I had when I was a young girl looking out my window, just as I had only a few months earlier when I'd lost my job and everything that held me in the city. But my need to understand what had happened in that house, in that room, was greater. I pushed my fingers under the exposed lip of the carpet, careful to avoid the blood, and tugged. The end came up easily, and the dry blood continued in a line further underneath. As I pulled the carpet back further, that line continued. The dry blood stretched from the closet toward the center of the room, where it then veered to the right and formed a giant circle, almost as wide as the room itself. It wasn't clean. A massive fingerprints and footprints around the edge showed the workings of a fevered mind that had drawn it. But that edge was a six-inch wide band, and carved into the dry blood were intricate symbols I didn't recognize. They seemed decorative, but I knew that wasn't the case. They meant something to someone. The only questions were what and to who. I didn't know what to make of any of it, and I was afraid to get too close. Seeing so much blood made me ill. I rolled the carpet back over the design to protect and conceal it, and immediately the quiver in my stomach subsided. I almost believed I imagined it. The time needed for such a project was beyond the scope of anything I could 
or to want to imagine. I sat on the floor of the room, shaken. Even though I'd seen the circle beneath my feet, already I was doubting its existence and blaming it on the wine. How could anyone collect enough blood to do such a thing, and why? I saw the ghost of Cheryl in front of me again, only now she no longer sat, brushing her hair, but instead was crazed and panicked, kneeling on bloodied hands and knees, painting the circle with her other arm, caked to the elbow in blood. Her face was smeared, her hair disheveled, and she glanced periodically at the dark window as though expecting someone or something to come through it. She whispered under her breath as she worked, and though I couldn't make out the words, I knew she spoke them with urgency. Then she began to call my name, a voice from the beyond beckoning me forward. It was only when I managed to snap back into reality that I realized the sound wasn't coming from the ghost whose house I'd purchased, but from outside the now normal window. I peered out and saw Jenny had come to visit me. I looked around for a place to put my ball of wine to keep it safe from spilling, but it seemed wisest to keep it with me, just in case I needed some extra courage. We had to shut this off, right? Oh, wait. Well, first, our master is back. Um, anyway, thank you. Um, and I hope you'll come next month. But also, I wanted to tell you guys, I don't want to say this on the thing. I mean, you have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.